Welcome to the Philip Wiley Show. Take a look behind the curtain of professional hacking and hear compelling discussions with guests from diverse backgrounds who share a common curiosity and passion for challenges and their job. And now, here's your host, offensive security professional, educator, mentor, and author, Philip Wiley. Hello, and welcome to another episode. I'm very excited today to have Moses Frost joining. One of my passions is the offensive security side. And so anytime I get the chance to speak with someone that works in the area, it's always fun to geek out on this stuff. So uh, it's great to have have you joining today, Moses. Thanks for joining. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So why don't you share with our, our listeners your background, kind of you know where you started out, what you're doing now, and, and how you got there? <laughs> uh, <that's, laughs> this is going to be a weird one. Um, your, all right, origin, so- your origin story. <laughs> all right. So... Uh, my origin story dates back to the late eighties, early nineties. So, uh, I was in, so I, I grew up in Miami. It's kind of a, everybody kind of knows the city now. Right. But, uh, grew up there, you know, I have some interesting stories about what it was like to live there in the, uh, in the early eighties, late eighties. Um, it's definitely a different city now. Right. Um, and, uh, Parents were immigrants, uh, Cuban immigrants. And so um, went to school, elementary school. In elementary school, they had these um, computer class, you know, like this is like early 80s, right? So um, there were Apple IIEs, I think, right? So the little all-in-one apples, right? And so you could go there and do something. I don't know, I think it was math, right? So do math or whatever. And if you could do the math problems enough, then the teachers were like, fine, play a video game. So I'd race to the math problems, play video games, like Oregon Trail or something, right? And uh, I don't know, I was young. I was in elementary school. So I went to my mom as a kid, like a, like a kid. And I said, I want a computer. And she was like, what do you, it's like, you don't even know, you sure you know how to use a computer? I don't think that's a smart idea. And my dad goes, I don't know. So he asked a friend of his, also came from Cuba, was an accountant. And, uh, Went to a, like, I don't, like, I think he literally dumpster dived. I think he literally dumpster dived because the story I got was, well, we threw this away at the office. I guess he worked in an accounting firm and it was like an 80 at the time. I like, now I know what it is, right? But I didn't know what it was then. It was an 8088. Okay. It was like a old classic IBM machine. They were throwing away. I guess they want a new one and it had a monochrome monitor. And I remember sitting it like on the floor of my, like, house you know i was like oh man does it actually work and he's like yeah put some games on there or whatever cool uh so started playing games after a while i got bored i was like what else do i do right so at the time you know for younger people uh you couldn't just go on the internet that didn't exist uh so you can go to a computer store and purchase software and books right so i remember reading young kid and i'm reading like dos like, what is DOS, right? And what is this thing? And whatever. Um, and so I'm playing around with it. Most hilarious story. This is for all the Vim users out there, right? Started looking at the computer and I broke out of the menuing system that this person had created. And uh, I'm like, okay, I got to look for executables because that's what the book says. The first one I hit is one, two, three, which is Lotus one, two, three for DOS. And Lotus one, two, three for DOS, you typed it and you saw like a grid, like think of it like your whole screen became Excel with no menu, right? It's kind of like VI, but a grid. And then I went, oh, now what? 
And then I restarted the computer because I had no idea how to get out of this software package. <laughs> it, it, it was it was different, right? Um, and then I happened to meet a friend, coincidentally in school. Uh, like I didn't have many friends growing up. I really couldn't have many friends growing up. Um, there's a whole backstory to that, but I really just didn't. I was kind of uh, didn't have a lot of friends out there. And so um, uh, one of the people that I could talk to at school. His brother worked at IBM, in, where I live now, in Boca Raton area. And they were working on OS2, actually. Um, and he was like, well, you know, there's a there's these things out there like modems. You can do this modem and dial up, and you can do all these different things. And so I started doing that really young, 12 years old or something, on all these bulletin boards. And, oh, you could play games on these things, right? So you could dial up. I also learned that in Miami, uh, some of the area codes – if you were in the 305 area code, which is the area code in Miami, if you actually started dialing numbers in 305 that were farther north than than the than Bell South, AT&T, uh, wanted you to dial into, you started paying long distance charges, even though you were in the same area code, right? So dialing up to certain bulletin boards actually in the same area code would cost you money. It's kind of a thing you learn, right? When your parents <laughs> ask you, what's this? Um, so, you know, so got into that, right? Now, I actually, funny enough, got doxxed at a very young age because as one would find out, you would, you go to a bulletin board, you're 10 years old, they ask you for your name and what do you put? Your name. You ask you for your address, you put your address, I don't know, 10, right? After a while, those bulletin boards are not fun anymore. You start getting to the fun bulletin boards. They're pirating software or they're doing art or whatever. I actually ran an art board for a while. One day, I get onto one of these more interesting, more kind of elite bulletin boards, and I'm logged in already, right? And what was interesting was that this is one of the first boards that I was on where it had more than one phone line. And so you could actually see other users and interact with them, and I'm already logged in. So I'm like, hmm, that's weird. So... I started messing with the guy and that was me, logged in as me. And then I started emailing the admin. I don't know what I did. I can't remember because it's many years ago. I pissed him off like nothing else, like nobody's business. So he got, he was the lead courier, which is like a person who pirates all the software for one of the biggest piracy groups in the world. And all my information, phone number, everything circumvented the globe uh, in, the in the early 90s around BBSs. Uh, so I got some interesting phone calls at the house from different places. Uh, uh, it was just a different time. Um, but yeah, that's, how I, that's kind of like how I started. And then in high school, um, I wasn't encouraged to go to college, believe it or not. It just wasn't a thing. So I, when I was in high school, I uh, didn't think those were in the cards. Uh, and remember, this is like not today's world, right? This isn't a world where everybody's encouraged to go to college. This was very long time ago. So what did I do out of high school? I decided to be an auto mechanic because, you know, computers and all the stuff I was doing with all the like hacking and all that, that's, that's, that's not going to, that's not really a good idea. There's no money in that, computers, eh, whatever. I'm just going to go be an auto mechanic. I know how to do that. My dad did it. So that was my first job. I was an auto mechanic. 
about a year into it, eh, like six months, eight months into it, I'm a machinist, whatever. My mom just like, you just terrible at this. You're not happy. So why don't you go back to like what you like? You like computers for so long. Why don't you do that? And I was like, well, what would I do? And she's like, I don't know, like find out. You, you're good at that. So I signed up for an A plus class. And at the time, it's not even 2000 yet. So A plus, you could pass it if you knew Windows 3.1, because that's what was on the test. And hardware that makes no sense to anybody today, like MLM drives. And so I get to the, you know, I start working on building systems. Meanwhile, no idea about this industry. I'm just like building systems for like, think of them like a, like a Best Buy, but they were highly abusive to their employees. They would ask them to clock out and not pay overtime and just crazy stuff. And so I end up um, trying to be better at this. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try to get out of this. You know, I wasn't there for like a few months. I'm like, I'm going to try to better myself. So I bought a laptop, very early laptop days. And this is when Windows NT4 had just come out. And I was like, well, I want to learn how to use Windows NT4 on this new laptop that I bought with my own money, right? Very proud of myself. And uh, I bought it. And it turns out that when that in this particular system, uh, there was no drivers. There was no such thing as drivers. There's no such thing, nothing, right? Because they weren't meant to run Windows NT on a laptop, especially a consumer laptop. But I figured it out. I figured out how to get drivers on there that worked. I looked at chipsets. I mean, at the time, uh, one of the things that I kind of glossed over in the whole bulletin board saga was that I did get on the internet early on. I got on there in the 90s when all the other bulletin boards got on there. And to get on there... I had to go download this thing called Linux. So I was on Linux kernel 1.2. So I knew how to read chipset drivers and I knew how to like understand how to make things work. Cause at that time, if you want to get Linux to work and give you a display, you had to actually know how to compile that kernel with the, all your hardware drivers and the right ones, or you could spend four or five days compiling and then having to redo it. So it was a very early time in the in the world of Linux. So I figured out how hardware works and figured out how to make this thing work, how to make this system work. And um, I went to this, I, I went through a, um, what do they call those companies? The consulting, comp uh, not consulting, the, the job contracting companies like uh, Girl yeah. Friday and all those. I don't even know what you call them anymore. Yeah, I remember what, the, I remember those because they did things like, it could be manual labor. It could be maid services. Yeah. Temporary. Yeah. Temporary. Uh, yeah. They called them temp services back then. I yes. Think. Temp workers. Yeah. 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 So yeah. the the, the yeah. local hospital here, the local, you know, uh, and it's, you can see it on my resume, right? Like Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is the biggest hospital. Well, it, well it's the fifth biggest in the nation. They decided, excuse me a second. I want to keep hearing that. So they decided that they needed a temp worker for PC support. So, I mean, I don't even know what my salary was when I started. It was like $8 an hour, $7 an hour, something like that, right? And it was like, yeah, we just need some temp workers to manage these desktops or to do these things. Oh, okay, cool. I'll do that. So what did I end up doing? I was replacing light pens for a mainframe. And I was, you know, like... I was asked to do the PC stuff, right? Now, 
I, I don't know why my mind works this way, but there's certain things that I just can't do. I can't just leave things alone. So this place hired me literally because I knew how to take a laptop and put Windows NT on it. And they're like, well, you're young, but we're not paying you much. So you do some grunt work. And I started to go in and um, uh, make a process out of their desktop imaging because I was tired of going somewhere and they had Windows 95 on other desktops because that was the way they could get work. They had this like strange terminal emulator for mainframes. That's what they needed their desktop. That's why I needed to run Windows 95 because they couldn't figure out how to make their terminal emulator work on anything else. And I was like, no, I can make this work and I can put it on NT or 2000 or whatever and I can make it work. And so I did. And I got to the point where I actually figured out a process to make it go faster. And eventually, this place was massive. Eventually, we migrated like 10,000 desktops to the system. And so all the other senior temp workers or senior, because they didn't hire anybody, they looked in, they're like, okay, well, we'll just follow what he says. And I'm like 19, and they're like in their 30s. I'm like, oh, that doesn't, I shouldn't have to be the one to tell you guys how this works. Like, you tell me how it works, you know? Um, and so I did that, right? But they were all great guys, and we all worked together. And they finally hired us at the job. You know, they finally hired us at the hospital, right? And so um, they were a um, great place to work uh, from the standpoint that they gave me that chance. Uh, but there was a union shop. So, you know, I got hired in this grade level, this tier, and um, you could do certain things. Like you could, like, be desktop support, I guess. Uh, but if you wanted to do something else, you needed to put in your time. Got to put in your time, right? Got to put in that time. So one day, you know, the des- the server people were kind of always like hands off with me, like, go away, kid. You know, you're kind of a pain in the butt. And I was like, all right. Uh, and, um, you know, it was kind of like frustrating after a while. And one of the things that was really frustrating was that for whatever reason, now this is going to be kind of a weird story, but just go with me, right? But for whatever reason, I had these... Um, systems at the other end of the campus that were installing office like you know like office you have office uh 365 today imagine back then it was office 97 we installed it off a file share if i did it on the other side of the campus it would take an hour and a half if i did it at 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 my office right in the where the server's data center was it would take 15 minutes so i would cart these desktops basically across the campus which is a 20 minute walk just to give you an idea why this was like painful and I'm carting it over and then I'd have to cart it back. And I was like, I, I don't, why is this taking whatever? So I started asking questions about the network and more and more and more and more and more. And they're like, finally, like, look, like just go away, whatever. And I'm like, well, how can I do that? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, what do I need to do? And they're like, well, if you sleep in your car, basically, and you come after hours and you don't work on the clock and you pass all your Cisco certs and do all this stuff, maybe, right? So I did that. I like worked after hours for free and whatever they asked and paid my own Cisco certs, which at the time were very expensive to get your CCNA done. Did my MCSE, did my CCNA. Uh, did it twice. The first time I did my CCNA, they it was the week they changed the test from version one to version two. 
And I had to basically pay for another week of training because what I paid for wasn't going to work for the next, I mean, it was early, early years. Right. And, um, finally did it. Finally got in, finally became a, a network junior network engineer. And I look back at it today and I go, that was an insane thing to do because this is a shop that had 50 remote sites every type of technology you could think of. You, whatever protocol you want to think about, I had to know it. It was like DEC and Vines and uh, mainframe networking, like, you know, TN3270 and, and LUNs and LPARs and go in, all the things that was in there, um, go in and learn TCPIP and IPX, everything. 50 remote sites, 500 switches in their campus. We're talking like the big boy, six um, card switches. Um, ISDN frame relay, dial-up modems. We I had to go to the county jails to service machines. I mean, it's everywhere, right? And uh, let me tell you, there was two of us, me and Robert, supporting all that and the firewalls, and right. And so they gave me firewalls. They said, "You know Unix, yeah. You take care of the firewalls." Okay. So it's like two thousand three, two thousand four. Went to my first firewall class and they're like, oh, you're going to, once you get bitten by the security bug, you're going to never look back. And I was like, security? Like, okay, like firewall. Like, all right, just stopping firewalls. And they're like, nobody mentioned pen testing. Nobody mentioned any of that stuff. Nothing, right? It was like, you could be the firewall guy or girl and you could do the IDS and you can do the IPS. Well, ID, IPS wasn't a thing, but do the IDS, right? Network IDS. And there was no real understanding of what exactly we are preventing. It was just, we want to make sure that the viruses don't come in. At the time, that's what their viewpoint was. And most of the people in the industry, their viewpoint was, there are worms running around the, on the, around the place. There are these viruses running around the place. And I hate to tell you this, but you've got to stop it. So a lot of focus on stopping worms and viruses. Very little thought, really, into... There are humans behind this that want in, right? That wasn't like it is today. It's not like, oh, there's a there's advanced persistent threats and all that. That, that. that wasn't a thing, right? It was stopping the worms from taking down the place and stopping the network. Like, that was what it was. Um, and then a friend of mine, uh, so for so just a little bit of a rewind, when I was at the hospital as a network person, I kept getting asked to go to these really bizarre, small, uh, uh, inside of a conference room, stale environment, horrifically marketed things from a company that was advertised as storage and or systems administration uh, and networking and security, which you would know today as SANS, right? And it was like track one, track two. Track one. I had a friend of mine that finally went to the uh, 504 class, the incident response class with Ed Scotus. He did it like around 2004, right? And he came back and he's like, you should try this. And I'm like, really? That terribly marketed? You think it's good? And he's like, no, no, you should really try it. You'll have fun. It's in Orlando. Go do it. It's great, whatever. So I waited the next year. I did it. And I'm sitting in the class and there's 150 people. And I, don't, I have no idea. I'm, I've never been to DEF CON, never been to any of this stuff. I mean, that was things that I did as a kid. The magazines were things I did as a kid. 
there's no future in that, right? So why even return to that thing? I'm not working. I'm doing voice. I'm doing. I'm looking at future stuff. I'm doing VMware. I'm doing virtualization. I'm not doing any of this stuff, right? And uh, but I'm liking the class. I'm liking what's going on. It's a bunch of a bunch of hacking and stuff and whatever. And he goes at the end. Ed says, you know, at the end of the the this thing, uh, we're gonna do a CTF. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. He's like, well, if you win the CTF, uh, you get a buck or a couple of bucks or first place, second place, whatever. So go through the CTF and I see somebody get up and win first place. I'm stuck trying to move a file. Uh, by the way, to, for anybody interested in really obscure things, I moved a file to win the CTF, kind of third place, uh, using Telnet, no, using TFTP client on Windows XP because I didn't <laughs> understand how Netcat worked. So I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I win the CTF. <clears throat> And, all right, I get third place, and I go out there, you know, shake Ed's hands, whatever, get third place. There's no price for third place, right? And sit down, whatever. And, uh, you know, go to leave. And, uh, you know, I'm picking up my stuff, and uh, I'm with somebody at the time. They come in. We're talking a little bit. As I'm leaving, Ed stops. He goes, hey, you know, it's all right. You know, you know, you, uh, you did pretty good. Uh, you know, what'd you think? And I go, eh kind of sucked at this and I didn't win first place and it was fun, but eh, right. And he goes, do you know what this is? And I'm like, no. And he goes, do you know how many people are in this room? And I'm like, eh. he's like, there's 150 people in the room. I'm like, okay. Seems like a lot of people. Sure. He goes, the people that won the first place winner works at Intel as a pen tester. And the second place winner worked at Adobe as a pen tester. And you came in third, and you have no idea what this is. And I go, "What's a pen tester?" <laughs> so that's that was my introduction to what are you talking about? You know, I'm doing voice. I don't even I don't get paid for this. And then it took me a long time from there. I will be honest. It took me a long time from that point. It took me about three or four years to go into a role where I was a pure security person and not wearing multiple hats. Um, so it was a long kind of lead up to that right but that's that that's kind of the overarching high started in this insane thing yeah very cool background I always love when hearing people talk about the old technologies because when i started out i started out as a system administrator administering novel networks i, mean, I was a cna yeah i have my my cne and cna and, and uh I, actually the course i took was was three the 311 yeah. Uh, CNE with the upgrade. There was like an update. It was the three twelve or three. Yeah, I think it, was, it was three twelve, and the update was to four eleven. And so you took like the course. There was another manual for the upgrade. So you took the the CNE three X, and then you updated to took the test for for four eleven. And so that's that's what I did. So that's kind of how I got my start. Just hearing all the technologies. You're talking about the mixed mash of technology you had at the hospital. It was kind of that way at the mortgage company that I worked at. We had mainframes there we had a lot of had to use a lot of terminals so we use like we set up saa gateways and sna gateways because it was uh sna gateways yep. on microsoft saa gateways on novell i did sna these, gateway these, i know yeah <laughs> and so we had to set these terminal emulators up so people could access the mainframe and stuff so it's really cool to to hear others when they had that background it's kind of a trip down memory memory lane yeah so just to give people who've never worked at a hospital before like just to give you an idea like the insanity, right? 
So the core hospital system, they decided in the 80s to build their entire clinical informatics system in a mainframe themselves. So that's how the mainframe showed up. Then every place you go to in the hospital, like your radiology lab, your radiology systems, your oncology, your laboratory system, your OBGYN, they ran their own business almost. So the lab system had a deck fax for their stuff that they maintained with deck networking. Somebody had Lantastic for some things that they were doing. Lantastic, <laughs> <I remember laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, another another set of folks, they had like, uh, I, I think it was like a Fox Pro database server for clinical staffing. I mean, every kind of tech you can imagine was in this place. I'll give you a, a how crazy it was. So they had this um, pharmacology system where it dispenses the drugs, right? And so they call me down there one day and they're like, hey, we're having a networking issue. Can you come over here and check it out? This is like 2000, 2001, just to give you some time frame. I walked down there. There Now, this the system was from a company called Pixis or Cardinal Health. They're still around today. You can actually find one of these. Their servers were OS2 servers for some reason. They decided that their... Their like drug dispensing machines were Windows XP, but their servers were OS2. The, the, the network connection from the hospital over to the servers were going to be TCP IP. But for whatever reason, the server-to-server communication was on a different network card, and it was IPX SPX just because. I, it just <laughs> There was no rhyme or reason for any of this stuff. It was, it was wild. It was wild. <laughs> It, it kind of makes me think back. I remember Novell had the product, I think it was Borderware or something like that. It was kind of a, a security product. So you were TCP IP to the internet, but IPX, SPX internally. So that way, if an attacker came through, they're not going to get across IPX, SPX. But that was one of the one of the first, one of the, I guess the only product that was security product by Novell, but it was, was kind of interesting. Yeah, they had, um, they thought, I mean, now we're going into like some esoteric things, right? So they thought <laughs> <laughs> that the whole world is going to be IPS SPX because it was a superior protocol. So for those that have never seen this protocol, it's it's basically you take instead of like TCP IP, it's SPX is the TCP part and IPX is the IP part, right? And all of the addressing is hexadecimal. So you'd have networks out there that were like, instead of like 192.168, you'd see like, D-E-A-D-B-E-E-F, right? You know, the dead beef network or, you know, whatever. And um, <laughs> so bad. And uh, none of it was really well routed, but everybody used it for games. So if you want to play Doom or whatever, you know, you needed it. But the internet was IP. So they created their own version of like NAT, right? Where you could translate IPS SPX to IP addresses, right? Um what was insane, I look back at it now and I'm like, yeah, that was kind of well, that was kind of crazy. What was insane was the hospital I worked at, they were on the internet 92, 93. They gave them a slash 16 because that's what you did back in the early 90s. Everybody mm-hmm. got a slash 16. Everything had a slash 16. Everything. Printers, uh, or, or sorry, a slash 20. No, it was a big network. I think it was like a big network. Like they had actually created this monster network, like maybe a slash 20 or something as their main network. And so everything had it, the mainframe, uh, printers. So, oh, and 
<laughs> and when they gave me the firewalls, now this is like, imagine, they gave me the firewalls like in 2001 or so, right? One, two. So I go to this checkpoint class. I mean, this is like checkpoint. And I don't even think it was NG. I think it was four. And uh, they originally gave it to me on Windows NT. So the, the hospital was going to upgrade to like Nokia boxes, but their original firewalls were Windows, XP, or Windows NT. And they said, you know, at the class, right? They're like, you know, you need to make sure that at the bottom of your firewall rule base, you have a drop rule to make sure that people don't go into your network. Now, this is pre-NAT, right? Or maybe NAT was a thing, yeah. but a lot of companies didn't use it. And so, um, you know, you literally had every single system that was in this net hospital on the internet, like, like, you know, like if there yeah. was no internet firewall. Ratable. Yeah. And there was no <laughs> firewall because they didn't have a drop rule. <laughs> so... So you can literally just connect to these, like you can literally connect to these systems, you know, and it was, it was insane. You know, it was insane to think about it, that we were that naive back in the mid to, you know, like late nineties, mid two thousands, even that we were like before Nat, that we were like, yeah, you shouldn't be able to connect to the network. I mean, you know, that, that class, that, that, that 504 class, when we originally took that class, you know, you would talk about bind shells and reverse shells because you could actually do bind shells to people's computers on the open internet because people didn't have NAT or firewall. I mean, that is just, you know, think, it was just, it just can't even imagine that today. Right. That and when you think about some of the technology, think about things before switches too, when people were using hubs. Oh yeah. So, you know, now you have to worry, but you know, you don't, sniffing traffic is kind of a worry from the router switch perspective. But back then, you know, it was on the hub. So you could easily intercept any kind of information. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so as I got into the security thing, right, I got to meet a lot of people early on. And uh, I remember being uh, in the uh, immunity shop down in Miami beach with Dave, I tell and those guys. Um, and they were showing a, software that they never released, right? And the software was called Stalker, right? And um, it was basically around the time that 802.11 wireless came out. Um, and everybody was talking about these hotspots and how nothing is, it's like hub, right? It's hub mode. It's not really switch mode. And so what Stalker did was it would look at people's wireless MAC address and it would start to concatenate information that was sent in cookies um, over the wireless network so that you could probably stock them. So it would like, it would basically figure out what SSIDs you attached to, to put those on a map, to figure out like where those SSIDs were beaconing out of. Um, it would look at things like cookie values, certain cookies stored personal information, like I don't know, Domino's pizza would store like your name and your phone number and your, your like delivery address. So, I mean, there, this legitimately, oh, and none of it was encrypted because that wasn't a thing. So this legitimately was scary technology back in the, uh, back when, right, when we were first getting on the internet. Not, not, not ideal in any way. Yeah, yeah it's kind of interesting because nobody thought you'd, it would be a risk or anything. You know, the threat actors back then had a field day of how easy things would be. Yeah, you know what, though? I don't, I mean, yes and no. Um, the you've done this long enough to realize the industry was tiny. Yeah. Right. So everybody knew each other more or less. Like there was groups, there was like 
enclaves of people that you would know and could interact with, right? So there was the obvious groups, or maybe not so obvious. And then um, there was the understanding of what was being passed at the deepest, darkest layers of that traffic, and then what you could do with it. And I don't think that information was as readily available as it is today. The tools were just so immature that you kind of almost take for granted how better we've become at this, right? It's it's kind of an interesting um, maybe side effect of the industry growing and maturing and all that. I guess from a threat actor perspective, a lot of people were just weren't aware of what could be done back then, I guess, because you'd, you know, they'd had a field day, everything would have been easy because it's funny how now there's a, it takes a lot more to be a good pen tester or learn pen testing compared to when, you know, years ago, because I got my first pen testing job in 2012 and MS008067 for Microsoft, you could usually own anything in organization with that. So you went in there, that worked like a, like magic, but you can just imagine, you know, now compared to, it's a lot more difficult. You know, we had, when we had uh, some of the, the leaks from, from the NSA, like code blue or whatever. Eternal, blue, was eternal blue. Eternal blue. Yeah. yeah. And some of the other vulnerabilities that came out of that was one of the last times we've seen something like that. But it's just crazy how more difficult it is now compared to the way it used to be. Yeah. Uh, I guess yes and no. Right. Um, yeah. So there was a moment in time. Right. And <laughs> I did one of these shows. I, I'll never forget it. I think I did a Paul Security Weekly maybe in 2015. 14 or 15 or something like that at the time, right? I, I made a comment on the show. This took, uh, this took us for a tangent, which was, hey, you know, Active Directory needs to go away. We can't secure it, right? Now, this is like not – this was so long ago that I think the only synchronization tool that existed at the time was something like Dropbox, right? And so Paul says, you really think we need to get rid of all Active Directory? Like, just get rid of it. Like, you're really – like, is that even possible? And I was like, well, yeah, like we should just get rid of it. Like just get rid of it and use something else, right? And like use nothing, like use standalone systems. And he was like, well, how would you, how would you make, how would you like make sure that all the uh, systems were, uh, you know, like um, um, same configuration, right? How would you push out config? How would you replace group policy, right? And at the time, uh, I had taken a, a hiatus back in uh, 2012, a hiatus from the industry, and I was kind of burnt. I had worked at a couple of uh, startups, and I was just burnt. I, I was, was going to go sell houses. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. And my uh, my my wife, uh, my now wife, my then girlfriend, she says to me, um, "Hey, um, you like you're really good at computers. Why don't you just?" do something that you've never done or like just change what you're doing. So I said, all right. Um, you know, I've never been like a Linux admin. I like Linux. I've never done that. So I landed a job as a Linux admin, but basically it was a DevOps SRE, what we would call a DevOps SRE today. So I was just doing automation. So when Paul asked me like, how would you do group policy? I was like, oh, just do PowerShell DSC. Now this is before automation was a thing. This is before Intune, this is before Azure AD. I was like, I don't know. And I was like, oh, you could just pop, like use Dropbox and, you know, just kind of don't use some of these things. And he was like, mm. so I've been on this like delete Active Directory bandwagon for a while. And 
it kind of came to a head a little bit, I would say around 2016, 17, when people were using tools like CrackMap EXE and not even like having to understand anything in Active Directory really and just owning it and just using broadcasting traffic and just owning every system out there. And every time you talk to a pen tester, it's like, yeah, if I get a foothold, we just we just take us a day and we have DA. And in some respects, you know, it got easier because the tooling got better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in other respects, it has gotten a little bit more complicated, a little bit more complex in the last, say, four or five years. Like EDRs. Yes. Yeah, I have to agree with that. But yeah, yeah it's pretty interesting how, how that, and then also, uh, yeah, it's just amazing how some of the tools can make things easier. It's it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think at this point, um, if I talk to people, I'm like, well, what do you need Active Directory for? And then they'll tell me something silly like, well, we need it for ADCS. And I'll be like, okay, well, you could figure out a replacement for that. We can figure that out. What else you need it for? Well, we have file shares that we mount. Like, for what? <laughs> and they're like, I don't know, finance. Uh, okay, we can figure a way out that. And then that's usually it, right? Like nowadays, you mm-hmm. could do 802.1x wireless with Azure AD. You could do SharePoint. Um, you know, maybe the ADCS thing is probably the only thing that you have to kind of think through, but you can make an argument that we could do something else. And then that's it. I mean, that there's, I do, why do people have this lying around, you know? Heck, I even heard somebody tell me something wild. You, you'd get a kick out of this. They told me something, okay. their theory, right? So I was talking to Jason Fawson. He does the SANS Windows security stuff. And I saw him in, in April. It's very fresh in my mind. And he made a comment. He said, you know, Windows Server might just be going away. And I was like, what? Like, what do you, what do you mean? And he goes, well, yeah. And why, how many features came out in the last version of Windows Server? Like, why do you need it anymore? They're pushing everybody to Azure. They're reporting into the Azure ecosystem. You know, who's really buying Windows Server today, you know, at scale? And so it makes a compelling argument for will we see that will we be around long enough to see the day for Windows Server to no longer be a thing? Yeah. And then what? That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, you, then you truly got to you got to truly wonder what else is under the hood of Azure too. You know, are they? Because I know at one time they were using some Linux stuff to run some of this stuff in their environment. Not don't remember exactly what it was, but but you know, you figure now they've got the the Windows Linux subsystem running on there, and you know, it was really the command line wasn't very powerful on Windows until they came out with PowerShell. You know, you look at what Linux had to offer for many years. Bash was a lot more powerful than just the DOS command line. Uh, well, I mean, I I uh, I was thinking about like what would happen in Azure, and I do have to tell you that there are some technologies in Azure that absolutely require Windows, in my opinion, unless they do something crazy, which they could, and move it all to Linux, like moving. Um, I don't know if anybody know. I don't know if you know this. So, um, I had a student of mine uh, showed he was he's older gentleman with military, and he told me um, that he was sent to. Uh, he worked at at one time. He worked at 3M, and in the 80s, he was sent to training to be the to for uh, for landman training for HPUX. 
because prior to Microsoft acquiring Landman, they actually had an HP UX uh, version of the software that ran and that mounted the X drive and did all that, right? So in theory, Microsoft could port all of SMB and everything to uh, to, to something like Linux. They could do it, uh, I could imagine. Um, but I mean, if you think about it, right? Like Azure files, Azure blobs, all that technology that they use, that's kind of all be Windows Server because it's SMB 3.1 into the hood. It, it's, all, it's all kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> it's probably some kind of... <laughs> really strange version of windows under the hood. Um, but I don't know. I mean, has, I, you know, if, if windows server were to, well, let's put it this way, you know, so work for a company called Nuvik now. And what, what we do is red teamwork. And, um, they hired, you know, they hired me early on to help run the cloud practice. Cause my, Four or five years ago, I wrote the the cloud pen testing class for SAN, so I did a lot of cloud work. And um, most of the things that we do that I'm that I focus on are like you know whatever cloud environments and Kubernetes and all those technologies. And I've got to tell you, today, if you want to hack like it's 1999, those cloud environments that are running Linux, it's it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> I haven't seen a single decent package, software package that'll prevent you from doing stuff. That's saying a lot. Like I could tell you stories about things we've done where you're just like, but why does that work? And uh, having worked on the manufacturer side, I can absolutely tell you why it doesn't work. It's because they don't have support for Linux or Mac. Uh, so <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting if we see companies adopt Linux much more than they do for day-to-day -day workloads, because there's going to have to be a lot of work on the defensive side to really understand what's going on in those Linux environments. Very cool. So uh, what would you recommend for someone that's wanting to get into pen testing these days? What would you recommend? Ooh. Um, so... So for people who are, are just starting, right, um, I've gone back and forth on this. If you want to do this work, I would start very small and expand your skill set, right? So find one area that you're really comfortable with and be that person for a while and try not to be the jack of all trades. So, for example, we just um, hired an intern. Um one of our first interns and just smart hired him. And I almost forget that he is so early in career, right? Because everything I asked him to do, he does it, right? And he just doesn't let it go, right? Um, so I think one of the things that I like about him is that he's inquisitive and persistent, right? So he won't let go of this shiny object for something else. He's focused, great skill set. Um, inquisitive, you know, able to like think a little differently, great skill set. And most importantly, he stays on task and stays on it, right? So um, it, it turns out that this person really liked to learn web app pen testing. It's great. So, you know, his name is Joe. I said, Joe, great. I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go through like, I don't know, Port Trigger, uh, the academy, right? Just go through there 
and let's talk about it. Let's just go through like questions and whatever. He's done it, right? He's been doing it. And um, we'll be very good at it. I'll give him like some web pen testing work that he can go through. And he's actually done some pretty likes to do it a certain way, find some really interesting bugs. And then I'll ask him a question like, uh, like we'll talk about something different with Mimikatz and LSAS. And just stop and say, well, what's LSAS? Right? Um, so start small. Don't try to be everything. And the other thing I will say is don't fall into the trap of trying to become somebody important or famous or trying to become somebody on social, trying to have a persona on social media. It's kind of a trap, right? Um, I am happy to say I don't know everything. No idea, right? How does that work? I don't know, right? Let's just, let's find out. I don't know, right? I find that there's that people set expectations of, of others and then try to hold people up to expectations. Like, what do you mean you don't know how to do that, right? Like, why, how do you not know how to do that? Well, I just don't know how to do that, right? So don't fall into that trap because when, when I started, we didn't have social media, right? So if I didn't know something, there was no social consequence to it. I just didn't know it, right? Um, and even in the, the hacker world, right, it's a, kind of like a prove it mentality. Like, oh, you did something, prove it, right? Uh, but if you didn't know something, then try harder, right? Try to figure it out, right? That's the mentality. Um, but today you've got all this social media platforms, you got, you know, Twitter and everything else that's out there. And there's this seems to be this perception of the person on that social media platform and what they're doing. Um, maybe what they're trying to post, maybe they seem to be like a, a SME, they get a lot of followers and they might just be a one trick pony. And then when they want to go learn something, they're almost shy or embarrassed or unable to ask because now they're over here in this online presence when they're really not, you know, and, I, and I've seen that theme. It happens over and over again, right? Don't fall into that yeah. trap. Nobody knows everything. Promise you. And so that's the most, yeah, that, Im that's important. That's some great advice because too many times people try to learn, learn all of it. And, you know, at one time, you know, 10 years ago, all you had was web app and, and network pen testing, you know, some Wi-Fi pen testing, but now you got cloud and you've got IOT, you got all these things and, and you just, it's just kind of impossible to be good at all of it. And yeah, no, you can't. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's people that like writing software exploits. There's people that like operating a red team and the person writing the software exploit might not be good at red team. That's fine. That's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. You don't have to, be that per you don't have to be all the people right yeah. so that's that's kind of my advice well very good we're down towards the end of the show and if, is there anything you'd like to share before we end um let's see um i would say if there's one thing to take away it's that there's no straight path in this career right um you and I were talking about different ways that I've spun my career and the different reasons I've done it. Um, there's no straight shot, right? So my, in, in my view, right, the only reason that I could understand some of the things that I've done is just because I've been around long, around long enough to see it, right? It's not because I've um, gone through and, and read, you know, 50,000 pages every day at night or anything. I've just been around long enough to see it. 
So it's a long career path. Make friends. Take notes. Honestly, that's a good one. And uh, don't be a jerk. I censored my language for you. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. Thank, thanks for joining. It was, it was great to have you on here. This was a very fun, fun show. So it's been a lot of fun. So I can't wait for the listeners to, to hear it. All right. Well, I, I appreciate it, Philip. Thank you for listening to The Philip Wiley Show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, to learn more about Philip, go to thehackermaker.com and connect with him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Philip Wiley. Until next time.